Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, we pray you would just open our hearts and our minds to your word, that you would just fill this place with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and give us an understanding in your word, Father, and help us, Lord, to understand what it means to belong to um, a God that is righteous and holy and gracious and long-suffering. Lord, just help us to grasp these attributes of yours, Lord, that they would affect our lives in a powerful way, in a practical way. And so, Lord, teach us tonight, Lord. Uh, let us just have ears to hear and eyes to see, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we um, studied the holiness of God, and that described God as being absolutely pure. In him is light and is no darkness at all. And Lorraine was sharing with us last week that God is unique in his holiness, completely set apart from all of his creation. He is glorious in his holiness. And his holiness uh, is the perfection of his character. He is a holy God. And tonight we're going to look at his righteousness, which is the natural expression of his holiness. So it stems from it. It's his holiness in action. Um, God is righteous and just, and everything that he does is in accordance with his holy nature. So I want to look at the attribute of God's righteousness as it is defined, as it is declared in the word, as it is demonstrated by God, and as it is developed in the believer. So let's look at how it is defined. Um, as we look in the scriptures, we find that the righteousness of God is closely related to the justice of God. But we're um, uh, going to study the justice of God in another um, lesson. So we'll concentrate more on the righteousness, but it's very intertwined with the justice of God. Uh, so, like I said, his righteousness... Um, God's righteousness is his holiness in action, and his justice is his righteousness in rule and government. And God exercises righteousness towards uh, man, whether they're saved or unsaved. You know, in the, in the saved, God is seeking to draw us closer to him, more uh, to a place of obedience. To the unsaved, God is always working to bring them to repentance. Now, the word, uh, Old Testament word for righteous. Uh, one of the words used, and I'm not going to butcher the the Hebrew language for you ladies, but um, the word one of the words that's used uh, for righteous means just, lawful, right, or straight. And that word deals with God's moral and ethical standard as his nature and his will. And the Lord is just, impartial, unable to make mistakes, he is unwavering and consistent in his dealings, actions, and decisions to perfection. Uh, the other word, um, mishfap, I think it's called, means righteous judgment as a judge, the act, process, decision, or verdict. And God's judgment is always right, it's always just. Now, the New Testament word, the Greek, uh, dikaios, when used of God means just, righteous, with reference to his judgment of men and nations. 
He is a righteous judge without prejudice or partiality. Not going to find that this side of heaven. (laughs) Of men, it means that they are upright, just, righteous, conforming to the laws of God and man. Now, Moses taught the children of Israel a song when they were in the wilderness um, in Deuteronomy 32, and it sets forth the perfections of God. And in Deuteronomy 32.4, he states, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Now, to us, it sounds like, wow, he's really overstating things, right? But he's not. We need to really grab a hold of the fact that our God is righteous, that there is no injustice. All, circle that, all his ways are, um, are justice and righteous. I love it that he calls him a rock. Um, his work is perfect. His ways are just judgment, a God of truth. That means that God is going to do what he says. What, his, what he has promised in his word will come to pass. He is righteous in everything that he shares and says in his word. He is without injustice. That means he has no wrong dealings with men. Righteous, just, and upright, straight, and correct is God. Um, now, God, Moses called God the rock. That means he's steadfast, immovable. So his righteousness, like every other attribute of God, is immutable, unchangeable. God isn't righteous one day and then the next day kind of, well, he's not like we are. You know, we kind of get it for a while and then we, you know, lose it. And God is always consistently righteous. He does not change everything about God's character. I know we're looking at God's character in bits and pieces, but God is not broken up. He is all that he is all of the time, unchanging. Now, God is not measured by a standard of righteousness. There is nothing outside of God that states righteousness. God is righteous. God is the standard for righteousness. Let's see how uh, it is declared in the word of God. In Daniel Uh, 9, 7, we read, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you've driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they've committed against you. So in this scripture, we're told that righteousness belongs to God. The, The Psalms also tell us that power belongs to God. It's his possession. Psalms 36.6 says, Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep, O Lord. You preserve both man and beast. And I love this uh, comparison. God's righteousness is compared to the great mountains. You just can just see this huge mountain and it towers up into the sky and the, the clouds cover the top. It is immense. You can't help but see it. It's visible to all, and yet you can't even see the 
the end of it because it is so high in the, in the horizon. It is enduring and immovable and unchanging. A mountain is something that, you know, it's not going anywhere. And that's what his righteousness is like, the great mountains. We will never quite uh, grasp it or understand it. It is so huge. It is so high. In Psalm 145, 17, tells us the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. And like I said, you circle that word all, because that little word means a lot. Because you and I are righteous sometimes, in some of our ways, maybe, <laughs> depending on the situation, depending on who you might be, sometimes we're righteous. God is righteous in all his ways, with every person that has ever lived. All his ways. Whether he's dealing with the righteous or the wicked, it doesn't matter who God's dealing with, his ways are righteous. Sometimes we start out being righteous, right? But the situation gets a little messy, and our righteousness is gone. But not God. We can be assured that God will administer justice without favoritism. He will not have a set of rules for the rich and another for the poor. He will not have a set of standards for the rulers and another for the ruled. Um, There will be no executive privilege and no diplomatic immunity. Everyone gets the same treatment. No favoritism. No partiality. Psalms 11.7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. God loves righteousness. Psalms 45.7a says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Yes, God hates a few things. He hates wickedness. He hates sin. In Psalms 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So his government, the way he governs and rules, is founded on righteousness. Because God sees what is right, he knows what is right, he acts on what is right. So the outcome is righteous judgment. Jeremiah 9.24 says, Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. God delights in exercising righteousness in the earth. He is committed to exercising righteousness. And... I know sometimes we, we might think about these, these ideas and think, well, gosh, sometimes doesn't it seem like the wicked just go unchecked and the ungodly just unleash their way and havoc on the world around us, even in our own world? And I, I think that people like Joseph might have thought, really? Um, you just think about him as a young boy. His, his brothers, they're, um, 
jealous of him. And they throw him into a pit. And then they decide, ah, we'll just make some money off of him. They sell him to slave traders. He goes down to Egypt. Once he's down there, he's falsely accused. He ends up in prison. And and he's got to be thinking, well, where's the righteousness of God in all of this? What have I done? And so sometimes I think it's, it's easy to look at the world around us. And we look at our circumstances and the people in our lives and the people in our government. And we see what goes on and we wonder, well, where is the righteousness of God in all of this? Well, in Psalm 37 and in Psalm 73, that situation is addressed. The psalmist is struggling with the fact that the ungodly seem to prosper and they go unchecked. Yet the, the righteous person suffers. In Jeremiah 12.1, Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? We all identify, right? Lord, I know you're righteous, but I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand it. Habakkuk, he struggled with the same thing. Came to God, and why are these people so evil and they're, they're going unchecked? I don't get it. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist states, I love it. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. My feet had almost slipped. I'm watching this. I'm seeing it go on. And it's tripping me up. I I don't get it. And then he says in um, verse 16, he says, Then I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me. I didn't understand it until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely. You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. Uh, They are utterly consumed with terrors. So he didn't see what God dealing with the righteous. But as he went to the sanctuary of God, as he went into God's presence, and he realized God is going to deal with the wicked. He's not going to let things go unchecked. Um, God wasn't looking the other way. Sometimes when it looks like people are getting away with murder, we just feel like maybe God's just turning a a blind eye. But he's not. Hebrews 4.13 says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open before him with whom we must give an account. Every person on earth will give an account of himself before God. God is going to deal with every person. Our righteous God does not sweep things under the carpet. So you can be encouraged. If there's a situation you're dealing with, you're being mistreated, treated unfairly, treated harshly, um, you can know that God is righteous and he's going to execute He's going to exercise righteousness for you in your situation. 
And so I love what the, the psalmist does. Uh, instead of focusing his attention on what is happening around him, what is happening to him, he focuses attention on who is working for him. And in Psalms 37, we have the same situation going on, but uh, he gives us some things in that psalm that we can do. When I'm mistreated, when I'm being judged wrongly, when people are um, after me or hurting me, this is the thing that I can focus on. Because let me tell you, if you're going to focus on what everybody else is doing, how you've been hurt, um, your feelings, your emotions, you're going to be like the psalmist. My foot was starting to slip. You're going to be downcast. You're going to be discouraged. Um, but if you will do what the psalmist in 37 encourages, then you'll have a whole different outlook. Instead of focusing our intention, uh, attention on the ungodly, we're encouraged in Psalm 37, verse 3, to trust in the Lord. In verse 4, delight in the Lord. In verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. In verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Verse 8, cease from anger, forsake wrath. And in verse 23, walk in the steps he orders for you. And in verse 34, keep his way. When you're going through these times, you focus that God is righteous. And you look to him to execute righteousness for you in your life, in his time, in his way. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh, strength to your bones. If we focus on all of what everybody's doing that isn't right, we are going to pine away. We're going to be depressed. We're full of anxiety. That is not what God wants for you. You trust your righteous God to do righteously in the situation, and you trust him with your heart, your whole heart. Don't lean on what you think and feel and see. You trust in the Lord. You know, I, someone said it somewhere, I don't know where, but he says God doesn't settle all of his accounts in one day, but one day he will settle all of his accounts. We can be confident that our righteous God will deal with uh, the people that have hurt us and harmed us. He is going to render to each one according to their ways. And the scripture tells us, pray for them. They need it. Thirdly, I want to look at how the righteousness of God is demonstrated. Um, The first situation that comes to mind is uh, a situation with Abraham. Uh, God had uh, appeared to Abraham. He'd come down with a couple of angels, and he was giving Abraham this message. He came down to share with him, your wife that is way too old to have children, well, next year she's going to have a child. She's going to have a son, just like I promised. And you guys remember, Sarah's in the back laughing. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, but anyways, when when God is done sharing this information with um Abraham, he's about to leave. 
and the angels are starting to take off. And, and I love this because God says, shall we think we should share with Abraham what we're about to do? And I could just imagine Abraham going, what? Uh, I want to know. And um, so he begins to share with him that, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah has come to my ears. I'm going to check it out. And if it's altogether like I've been hearing, I'm going to destroy those cities. Well, Abraham, all he can think of is, I know he's right, but Lot is living in Sodom. Um, and so there is, there is uh, Abraham with this problem. God's going to destroy these cities. And so he makes an appeal to God. And what does he appeal to God on? God's righteousness. He appeals to the righteousness of God. And he begins to intercede for Lot and his family. And he says in Genesis 18, 23 through 26, Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Uh, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. I love it. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You're righteous, right, God? You're, you're going to do the right thing, aren't you? And um, so he's, he's kind of bringing out, God, you're righteous. You're going to do right, right? And he keeps talking to God. Well, what about if there's 45? Oh, what about 40? Well, excuse me, wait, one more. What about 30? He gets all the way down to 10. And uh, God says he would not destroy it for the sake of 10. But we know there was only four, right? And um, God provided for those four to be removed before he destroyed. He is the God, the judge of all the earth. He will do right. And Abraham needed to know this. Abraham needed that confidence. Of course, God is going to do right. And you can be assured in your life, the judge of all the earth is going to do right by you and by me. The righteousness of God was also demonstrated in his giving the law to his people. It was God's righteous provision for the people of God that they might be able to come near to him, to have fellowship with him. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8 states, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? 
May God wanted his people near to him. So he gave them laws and instructions and uh, sacrifices and offerings that uh, they might be able to come near him. And in Romans 7.20, we read that the law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. And we know it was based on his animal sacrifice. And these sacrifices only provided atonement until Christ would come. They were like an IOU. Christ would come, and he would be that perfect uh, lamb of God that was going to be revealed. But what the law did do, it allowed you to come close, but it, it also revealed something to you. You are a failure. You know, every time you have to go to the sanctuary, you realize, wow, I can't do this. I really tried this week to be good. Here I come with my lamb again, you know, <laughs> sacrifice another one. Um, I'd be going broke. I'd have to get the birds, you know. <laughs> but it really did make a point. I'm, I'm not efficient. I'm not able to keep this holy law. Galatians 3.24 says uh, that the law was given to be our tutor, to be a teacher, to teach us that we needed Christ. Because Isaiah 64.6 says that our righteousness, the best we can do, is as filthy rags before God. That's in comparison. And sometimes we think we're kind of good, don't we? I did had a really good day. I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And yet, as good as we can do, it's like filthy rags. It'll never, because you know, it has to stack up with God's perfect holiness. Now, whatever I thought I did or didn't do, when you stack it up against God, really falls flat. We might be able to measure ourselves among ourselves and find somebody, oh, I can look pretty good now. But that's, that's not where the standard lies. The standard is God's perfection. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is nothing in and of ourselves, nothing we can do, no work that we can perform that will ever give us a right standing before God. There is nothing we can do. And that's where religion falls short. Religion is based on man's works. You can never do enough. You can never be good enough. Only Christ is good enough. And the law makes that clear. Romans 3, 19 through 20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. I realize I can't keep up. I can't do this. But we have demonstrated in the gospel the righteousness of God for us. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. You see, if we want to have God's righteousness, 
It comes by faith, not works. We can't work for it. We believe God for it. And I love it because someone said, as a Christian, we don't get what we deserve. We get what we believe. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed that man is not made righteous before God by, by anything we do, but by putting our faith in Christ. Romans three twenty one through 26 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God demands perfect righteousness from man. Man in his fallen state uh, falls so short of that requirement. And that's just this huge problem for us. So huge, only God could solve it. In his righteousness, God made the way to justify the sinner by sending his son to be once and for all a sacrifice for sins. On the cross, God judged sin and his righteous anger towards sin was satisfied. The full measure of wrath, the wrath of God, was poured out on Christ, and our sin was judged, so that those who trust in Jesus' death on the cross have their sins forgiven. And they're declared then righteous before God. Those who do not accept Christ's death on the cross will have to pay the penalty themselves. And when you want to know what does God think of sin... You just have to look at Jesus and the death that he died. The punishment that was prescribed was from God. That was his wrath being poured out. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus died on the cross, our sins were imputed to him. That means they were put to his account. It's an accounting term, imputed to him. Our sins went to his account. And he was treated by God as though he had committed those sins. Now, we know he did not did commit no sin, right? But he was treated as if he had committed our sins. And the penalty for sin is death. So those sins were paid for by Christ. Now, on the other hand of that, the righteous life of Christ was imputed to us. It was uh, put into our account. And we have been treated then as if we were righteous and had entirely fulfilled the whole law, lived a perfect life as Jesus had. That is what has been put into your account. That is amazing. Amazing. God got the short end of the stick for sure. And because of this transaction, we are accepted by God as if 
we had never sinned. Because Jesus never sinned. His righteousness imputed to us. And we're treated like we've never sinned. We are made accepted in the beloved. We have passed from death to life. And because of that, ladies, we are to live in the newness of life. We are to live in the knowledge of his righteousness. The right standing that we have with God now is to rule our lives. And so lastly, I want to look at how this is developed in the believer. Now, uh, not all of God's attributes are um, communicable to the believer. His sovereignty is not, his power is not, his uh, omniscience is not. But some of the, the moral attributes, they are communicated to us. We can be righteous, live a righteous life. And I like what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11. But you, O man of God, flee these things, worldly, uh, worldliness and worldly wealth, uh, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Pursue righteousness. That should be a life pursuit for us. To pursue means to run swiftly after, to press on. It doesn't just happen. You don't get born again, and you don't just all of a sudden, all this righteousness falls in your lap. And all your life just turns godly. Wouldn't it be great? Um, A lot of people think they signed up for that, but not really. Um, I love what Psalm 50, verse 23 says. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Whoever orders his conduct to be right. So I have to order my conduct. I have to think about it. I have to participate. I can't just let myself do whatever I feel. Second Peter um, 1, 3 through 4 says, As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we are to be partakers of the divine nature. We're to order our conduct to be right. And we do that through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge we have in his word, because his word dictates his will, his ways, and this is how I order my conduct. I get into the word of God. I see what it says. How does it apply to me? How does it apply to my situation? Uh, what is it I need to do? Because God has given us everything we need to live a right life, to please him. You know, God wants you and I to be imitators of him. You ever remember being in grade school and you'd see somebody and you thought, oh man, those people are cool. I'm going to try to try to be just like them. And you, you try to wear the same clothes, you try to talk like they do, and you know, and then they get offended. And it's like, wow, I was just trying to be cool. <laughs> but God says, imitate me. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Children do just, they talk like their parents. That's why you got to be careful what you say when you're a parent. Because you're going to go to someone's house for dinner and your kid's going to say it. 
whatever that thing is that just comes out, you better believe you're going to hear it. But we're to imitate God as dear children. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32 talks about putting off the old man. And Lorraine touched on this last week. Put off the old man that grows corrupt. There's nothing good. In my flesh dwells no good thing. I have to put it off. That takes effort. Put it off. It doesn't fall off. You know, I'd love it if that happened. But ladies, you got to put it off. Put off the old ways, the old thought patterns, the old habits, the old desires. And like I said, putting it off takes effort. It takes planning. It takes purpose. It takes prayer. And I have to recognize what those old things are. I kind of have to take a good look at myself and see where the areas that need to change. Um, Because there's certain things in our life that uh, just hold us, they drag us back into carnality if we don't cut them off or take them off. And so uh, I have to be purposeful about the issues of my life. There, There may be places I cannot go, people I can't associate with. Uh, Things I can't surround myself with. Activities I can't participate in. The the Lord's going to minister to you. He's going to show you what those old things are. Put those off. And it's not enough to put off. You need to put on. And that, again, doesn't jump on your body. doesn't jump on your soul. You have to put the effort in. We have to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We have to get into the word of God so that our thoughts change. So the way we look at the world changes. So we're not conformed to this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind to know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will. So we're to put on our new thoughts, new habits. We have a new direction for our life. And again, it takes effort, takes planning, takes purpose, takes prayer. So we look to the word of God and we let it guide us in these things. You got to set your emotions aside, your feelings aside, your habits aside, and you got to walk in the newness of life. I want to tell you something. The change in your life is one of the greatest tools for witnessing that you own. You know, people are going to see that you were like this and now you're like this, what happened to you? And you can share, Jesus happened to me. It's the greatest witnessing tool, the transformation and the change that God brings in your life. And God expects us to do this. Stuff's not in here just to read and fill your mind with. He expects us to do this. But he also doesn't expect us to do it perfectly. And he's made allowance for that. And 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you blow it, when you don't uh, take off and put on the right things, you know, you go to God and you confess that sin. Lord, I, I did it again. I'm really sorry. Cleanse me. And we can take him at his word. He's righteous. He's faithful. He will forgive you. You're cleansed.
You know, ladies, we are going to fall down, but we don't stay down. You get up because you know what? You've got a hand from heaven reaching down to pick you up. God is wanting you um, to move forward. Confession of our sins keeps us in a right relationship with God so he can use us, so we can grow, so we can be close to him. When we live with unconfessed sin in our lives, we're giving the enemy of our souls an inroad. Do you know the only access he has into your life is sin? You have control of that. So when you know something's gone wrong, you know you're in sin, confess that sin. Get right and move forward. Do not give the enemy an inroad into your life. In fact, God has provided for this as well. He knows Satan's waiting at the back door for you to leave it open through unconfessed sin. Or, <clears throat> and he has uh, provided the breastplate of righteousness when you are battling with him. In Ephesians 6.14 says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we are to put on that breastplate of righteousness. Where does that go? Over your heart. What is uh, Proverbs 4.23? Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. I have to be careful what goes into my heart. Because our heart controls the output of our lives. So what are you bringing in? What are you thinking on? What do you meditate on? What do you allow to go on in your heart? You've got to keep it. You've got to guard it. And then, ladies... Sometimes you'll find yourself in a place of suffering. And God has provided uh, for that as well. When we suffer, we are to follow Jesus' example by committing ourselves to who? To God who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And when you find yourself in that place where you're suffering, you're persecuted, um, you're going through it, you commit yourself to God um, who judges righteously. Commit your cause to him. We are not to seek revenge in different situations. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, committing his soul to him who judges righteously. We have to leave our cause with God. Trust him. He is the righteous God. And what I love about our righteous God is that he is a rewarder for those um, who walk with him and follow him and seek to live in right relationship. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Our God 
our righteous God, is going to give to us a crown of righteousness when we're in heaven. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's going to crown on your head, a crown of righteousness, because you have loved him. You have loved his appearing. You have walked with him. You have committed your soul to him in suffering. You have believed all that he has said. You have lived by faith in the Son of God who died for you. And he's going to give you a crown of righteousness on that day. I mean, is our God amazing? And do we deserve it? No. And I just started to think about, we are just entering the, the season, the award seasons, right? We have the Oscars, we're going to have, or we're about to have the Oscars. And I think about the, the award that they get, the Oscar, and they're getting awarded for what? Pretending to be people they're not. <laughs> Isn't that what acting is? Or facilitating people to pretend to be what they're not. And God is going to reward you for being like him. There's no better award than that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you that you are a God of righteousness, that, Lord, we can commit every cause to you because you are the righteous judge, and you will judge righteously every cause, every person, every situation. We thank you, Father, that we can commit ourselves to you Lord, I just pray for every woman here, anyone struggling with an issue, um, Lord, that they would be able to lay that down at your feet right now and trust you to work out for her that situation with all the righteousness that you are. And we want to thank you that we have a righteous God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.